Orlando Ori Spado was born on December 17, 1944, in Rome, New York, where he attends high school at Rome Free Academy. At the age of 18, Ori joins the U.S. Army and serves his country proudly, and is discharged honorably in 1966. He returns to Rome and has various jobs until he sells insurance for the Prudential Insurance Company, where he is a leading agent. After his marriage and three children, Ori moves to San Francisco, where he marries his second wife, and then, after another divorce, he moves to Beverly Hills, California. Here he becomes known as the Hollywood Mob Boss, enjoying a friendship with the legend underboss Sonny Franchisi of the Colombo family for over 40 years, a friendship that remains to this day. In his new book, The Accidental Gangster, Mr. Spado tells the true story of his life, he lived it, he owns it, and takes full responsibility for the actions of his past. You can pre-order your autographed copy at theaccidentalgangster.com while supplies last. I've already purchased my copy, so don't delay. A link can be found in today's show notes. Make no mistake, in the Prohibition era... The American Mafia ruled the rackets of New York City with an ironclad Italian fist. However, one outlaw's uncontrolled and untamed hostile initiative nearly took them down and forced their hand. An outlaw who was born with one name but died with another. An outlaw whose infamous hostility caught the attention of renowned racketeering gangsters and whose same hostility caused these mobsters to turn on him. Not unlike the mythic pirate vessel, the Flying Dutchman, this particular outlaw was an unorthodox figure whose exact number of victims is the stuff of legend. He was a figure who could come up from the depths and drag you down with him. Known as the black sheep of the mob, he was described as unable to negotiate with an extraordinarily short temper. Never lacking creativity, he would encase feet in concrete and dump them into the Harlem River in a practice that became known as concrete legs. An outlaw whose story has the climax worthy of a Robert Louis Stevenson epic buried treasure and an as-yet-to-be-found X that marks the spot. This is the legend of Dutch, the Dutchman Schultz. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era's come. Five views of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. Okay, so uh, just to get it out of the way, there's the legend of the buried treasure. Joshua the intern uh, got me privy to. Good job, Dry buddy. Island. Every day he contributes one little thing, and this is it. So the treasure, I found an article from the New York Times in 1997. It kind of sums it up the best, and it goes like this. The story goes that shortly before he was gunned down in a Newark restaurant, Schultz drove to the Catskill village of Phoenicia, one of his regular haunts, and buried a metal box packed with diamonds, gold, and $1,000 bills. Ever since, rumors have rippled and faded. The treasure is near a stand of big pine trees. It is buried by the Asapas Creek. It lies on a straight line between Mount Tobias and Panther Mountain. Treasure seekers regularly pass through Phoenicia laden with books, spades, metal detectors, and dreams. <laughs> Dutch Schultz trusted only his longtime bodyguard, Bernard Lulu Rosencrantz, and so no one knows the form or size of the treasure he allegedly buried in the Catskill Mountains near Phoenicia, New York. 
The amounts vary from five to nine million dollars, sums that would be worth 10 times as much today. It was also unclear if it was in cash, jewels, or even gold pieces. It seems no one will ever know for sure because Dutch kept the whole thing quiet until he was on his deathbed. So when I did the uh, Google search, I see all kinds of stuff. Guys have entire shows to get it dedicated to this or even blogs dedicated yeah. to it people have hunted for it i've heard that the uh the pine tree was marked with an x and then and then the bark got scraped off the tree so you can't <laughs> find it and you know you can match all the crazy things one guy we had searched for it his whole life and then got exasperated and published his maps and was like i'm done here here's the <laughs> maps right so i started thinking though about dutch and is he's crazy enough to do it but the one thing we learned about this guy, he is the most creative gangster. Read it later, but he had yeah. some uh, innovative ways of killing guys. Yeah, it's a shame he didn't do something else with his life because he he's the Walt Disney of gangsters <laughs> and stuff. So it got me thinking, like, you know, they don't know what's in the box. They're speculating. But I'm like, someone as creative as Dutch Schultz, like, what's the, the wildest thing you could think of that he would have done? when he buried that box. So you dig it up and here it is. What's the scenario? Wildest thing I could find in the box? I mean, there's always the classic, you tell everyone there's treasure, you make it seem a really big thing and it's nothing. It's like a big last, like one middle finger to everyone. Now there probably is buried something, but there's always that a possibility that yeah. on your dying deathbed you say, and the treasure's buried and you give the location or half of it all for it to be just nothing and it actually is a hand with a middle finger <laughs> you dig it up that's true yeah <laughs> knowing that's him classic. I, I don't know Joshua the intern help us out what do you got just a little note suckers <laughs> <laughs> alright here, here's what I got they dig up the steel box and in it is the body of Vincent Mangano. Ah. <laughs> oh, it's a big box. Okay. <laughs> it's like the skeleton version. And it's like, remember, uh, he disappeared in the Anastasia episode? And they yeah. found his brother in the swamp, but they never found him. <laughs> and it turns out him and Anastasia were supposed to do a quid pro quo, right? He took care of Mangano. Anastasia's supposed to take care of Dewey. But he doesn't, right? He goes to Luciano, and the whole thing falls apart and stuff. So he ends up taking that body, buries it. And then he leaves these clues on his deathbed, knowing that Luciano is going to get on this. And Luciano did spend, they say, a long time of resources trying to find that money because he's thinking it's like $10 million. So Luciano finds it. He opens up the steel box. And when he opens it up, it's Mangano. He's skeletized, but he's got his, his middle finger up. And there's a ring on it. And when you look closer, it's, it's not a ring, but it's the pin of a grenade that's duct taped uh. to the lid of the steel box. And <laughs> Damn. Dang. That's creative. That would have been, but the only problem is nobody's smart enough to find it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, these people digging around, your, your death is waiting. Don't follow that metal detector very far. Hello again. This is Partners in Crime. I'm your humble host, Bill Crooks, fighting to my last breath to bring you even a fleeting moment of entertainment. Sitting to my right, they call him the Zip because he will relieve himself anywhere, anytime. It is Zach Griffith. Pleasure to be back, as always. And as always, close by, shaking off his shoe with an expression of horror and revulsion, the movie madman, Brett Sexton. Happy to be back, talking about another good, good, <laughs> wholesome man. 
Lastly, at the controls, he's no big deal in the U.S., but I hear he's huge in Pakistan. It is Joshua the Intern. <laughs> you do one little calendar. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, research in Dutch, there's so much stuff out there for a guy that's not as, as well heard of. I mean, I think people that are into this kind of circle and stuff, they know Dutch. But your average person who knows Capone and Luciano and those big names probably don't know the Dutchman. And uh, I'm watching, but... In the 50s, there's a lot of old TVs and stuff, and he was big. He's, he's been featured in a lot of things. One of the craziest things I saw was a show I'd never heard of. It was called The Lawless Years, and it was uh, apparently aired on TV from 59 to around 61, something like that. And, of course, they've got the, the Dutchman episode. And so I, I clicked this full video on YouTube. And it starts off great. It's it's the Dutchman. It looks like him. And he's like, look at this. This Dewey's coming after me. He's out of control. We got to do something. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great. He goes to the commission. And the commission is sitting at a table kind of like we are. And it's really business-like, you know, way more than it would really be and stuff. The first thing that struck me is at the head of the table, I'm like, that doesn't look like Luciano. It's like some old guy. They call him Mr. G. And I'm like, I must be missing something. Who's Mr. G? Where's Luciano? <laughs> but anyway, they get they get moving on, and uh, he's like, uh, Dutch has the floor. He'd like to bring a proposition to the commission. You know, and Dutch is like, I'm telling you, he's out of control. You could be next, or you. Come on, we got to do it now. So he, he does his little pitch, and he's like, uh, would anybody like to say anything? <laughs> this big burly guy goes, uh, I think he's right. I think, uh, I think he makes a lot of sense. And then someone else goes, I don't know. The judge <laughs> just jumps up, you know, because he's fiery temper. He goes, well, I do know, and we're going to do it. <laughs> settle down, settle down, Gus. You've had your say, you know, and it's like order in the court. And they start going around the, the thing. And uh, what they come to in this episode is they say, we're going to table this. We all meet back in a week. I want you to think about it, and we'll take a vote next week. Dutch throws out there. He's like, okay, but uh, while we're thinking about it and before we vote yes next week, let's go ahead and get the blueprint for the murder to go down, <laughs> which kind of coincides because he had gotten Anastasia to do that legwork, and we covered that in episode two. I don't need to recover that whole thing. And I'm like, okay, so here he goes. He's going to go to Anastasia, right? Now he goes to these skinny gangsters like and just cliche gangsters, and they're like, hitting Dewey, huh? <whistles> That's a big hit. <laughs> we'll do it though there's gonna be a lot of heat a big rub and he goes yeah well why don't you let Mr. G worry about that and I, I'm confused because I don't know who the hell these guys are and I'm like are they murder incorporated are they are they going to Anastasia now yeah. and the guy uh, setting it up is Nikolai something who I've never heard of Russians yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like what is going on oh and they got this weird fat kid in the corner playing the violin or something. <laughs> it makes no sense to me and he's walking in and out and he plays this horrible violin and stuff right and uh right as these guys leave they go all right we'll plan the whole thing and they go who's teaching your kid the violin and he throws out his name he goes we'll do him for free <laughs> <laughs> that's a good line yeah. it was great the skinny caper guys are planning this thing out and it's like oceans 11 first we get a hot car we change the tires on the car brand new treads we're going to give it a paint job so even the owner wouldn't know it right we get some phony plates they're studying the beats of the cops so he'll be here this cop will be here and this and they've got like the preschool cars out and they're like we'll be by five minutes before the beat cop comes man this is like it was not planned out this way no. you know? <laughs> we'll steal the guns from a shipment of going to the military in europe and they won't be missed for months and we got a specialist that'll take the file off the guns and it's just like this crazy convoluted thing and i'm like what is this you know so they go back and they meet and uh the way they do the vote he goes everybody get your little piece of paper 
a check will be yes and an X will be no. <laughs> it's like they're passing out Valentines at the school. Thing, you know, and he's like, and just to recap, a check is yes, <laughs> an X is no. Make like, sure we're all clear in these instructions. <laughs> when I thought a check meant no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Recount, recount. Please do it in one fluid motion because if you use two separate lines, a check can look a lot like an X. <laughs> we gotta be clear. So they do it. And they turn in the little wadded pieces of paper and stuff. And he's reading it. He goes, We got an X. We got an X. We got an X. We got an X. A check, an X, <laughs> an X, and it's all X's. Like Dutchman's the only guy who votes yes. Oh, right. well, what happened, guys? <laughs> so he blows up right there. He goes, ah, who needs you? I'll do it myself. I say he's getting hit. And he storms out, you know, and they're all looking at each other. He goes, I'd like to make another motion. <laughs> <laughs> so they get down to the big hit, which we know where how it goes down. Dutch is like, you're going to do this, 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 and this. They, he ends up going outside the, the thing, and he's in a car, and he's going off to kill Dewey, and these cars box him in, and they come out with these Tommy guns, and they light up the car and kill him. Like a Sonny Corleone death? Yeah. Oh, tough. <laughs> tough. So at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the show, they conclude it, and Dutch does get killed. That does happen, you know? And uh, at the end, it just says on the screen, like, the events in this are basically made up. Like, we have changed everything that happened, you know, but Dutch Schultz did get killed. And I'm like, what the hell is this show? You know, like, it'd be like I make a show about John Lennon, but in the end, he's killed by Mia Farrow with a knife. Yeah. You know, but it's in the spirit of, you yeah, know. All they had to do was have the Dutchman die. They said, it's based on true events. <laughs> everything else can be whatever, but they have the one real JFK event. gets strangled, not shot. <laughs> but he uh, dies. I mean. <laughs> It occurs to me that maybe they changed it because Luciano's still alive <laughs> and they don't want to mess yeah. with him. Or maybe it's a libel suit or something, but I think he's yeah. in Sicily by this time, right? So, so yeah. yeah, so what's going on? I don't get it. So I don't know if they're afraid of like uh, libel suits or if they're afraid of getting retribution because most of these people are still alive. Anastasia would have been dead by now. But the Genevieve rest of them, is still here. Yeah, the rest would still be kicking. Yeah. So it was an interesting show. All right, let's get started. Arthur Simon Flegenheimer is born on August 6, 1901 in the Bronx to German-Jewish immigrants Emma and Hermann Flegenheimer. Little is known about Flegenheimer's early adolescent years, but one event in particular will stick with him for the rest of his crime-riddled life. At the fragile age of 14, family patriarch Hermann Flegenheimer abandons young Arthur and his mother, leaving his son as the caretaker of the home. His father's abrupt and unannounced exit from the picture leaves Arthur devastated and severely traumatized, even causing him to spiral into denial. Arthur often claims that his father was a stand-up guy and an ideal role model, a respectable man who took care and provided for his family and succumbed to disease. Eventually, Arthur even goes as far as denying knowledge of who his father was. Almost all sympathy for Flegenheimer ends there. Unable to balance his academics with taking care of his mother, Arthur probably unreluctantly, retires from his studies and enters the workforce. That whole aspect of him seems to color every story I read. Like when I first saw it in the thing, I'm like, oh, that's lame. I'm not putting that in, you know. <laughs> but every legend of this thing gets pervasive, and apparently anyone that knew him says this profoundly shaped his life. Dad? He's human. 
Do we think he would have quit school even if his dad hadn't left? No, if Mr. Flagenheimer was at the helm, I think everything would have been different. In the brief time between 1916 and 1919, Flegenheimer holds various legitimate jobs in his native Bronx, working as a feeder and pressman for the likes of Clark Looseleaf Company, Caxton Press, American Express, and Schultz Trucking. After giving the straight life a try, Flegenheimer finds it unamusing and becomes involved in a business much more exhilarating, robbing high-stakes craps games. Under the guidance of local lower-level mobsters, Flegenheimer graduates from gambling heist to all-out burglary, culminating his arrest for breaking into an apartment, by all accounts, his first arrest. It was during his incarceration on Blackwell's Island, known today as Roosevelt Island, that Flegenheimer's short temper and lack of anger management becomes familiar to law enforcement. The prison staff, who had housed the likes of con artists, corrupted officials, sex workers, and even a Nazi spy, has enough of Flegenheimer. The loose cannon is sent off to West Hampton Farms work farm. Flegenheimer's farming career is cut short when he escapes West Hampton shortly after his transfer, only to be recaptured soon thereafter and handed two more months in prison before being paroled on December 8, 1920. You know they want rid of him when an escape only gets you a few more weeks. Yeah. You know, they're like, well, yeah. just slap on the wrist for escaping, you know. But the rumor has it that he strangled somebody in the, in the prison and they couldn't pin it on him and stuff. But they don't want him there. Nobody wants him there. And it's like, you're, you're so bad you're getting kicked out of jail. <laughs> Even the farmhand didn't want him. <laughs> Fresh out of jail, Flegenheimer does not match the description of reform and quickly becomes re-involved with his local gang of mobsters. In addition to rejoining the force at Schultz Trucking, Flegenheimer, perhaps due to his disdain for his father or as a way to throw police off his trail, begins going by the name Dutch Schultz during this time stealing the nickname of the youngest son of Schultz Trucking's owner. There's a lot of legend about where he got the name. I've heard that he was an old gangster and stuff, but uh, this makes the most sense because he did work for this company and, and the kid, and I think that that's it. A lot of the things you'll read, it's got, he made it up because it's uh, zippy headlines and all that stuff. And I don't think it's a, that great a name. Mm-mm. No, it's not. Like one of the things I was well, like a video I was watching. They're like because Dutch Schultz sounds like the wax of an axe, you know, like a Dutch Schultz. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. That's a stretch. I think of the little Dutch boy with his wooden shoes, and Schultz. I think of Charlie Brown. Yeah, right. So, yeah. yeah, it doesn't really. I met a guy when I was in a coding class named Gunnar Wolf. That's a name. I could have done. I could have changed my life with that. Name. Yeah. <laughs> That's a name. Yeah. I don't even need Wolf. I would. I could be Gunner Crooks. Yeah. Everything would have been different. <laughs> Girls would think I'm more handsome. Yeah. Guys would think I was cooler. Everything would have been different. Gunner Crooks. It, it could have also been. He just wanted any name changed to. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he wasn't going to go down. He wasn't going, I'm not having Flegenheimer <laughs> on my grave. Writing Flegenheimer down every time. <laughs> he just got sick of it. <laughs> But, like, if you keep Arthur, go by Artie. Artie Schultz? Is that better than Dutch? It's better than Flegenheimer, so... (laughs) There's that. He had German ancestry, too, and I think Dutch was Deutsch. Mm, Yeah, Deutsch, yeah. There's something. That came up. It was probably a lot cooler back in the 1920s. (laughs) Right off the heels of Prohibition's enactment on January 17th, 1920, Dutch Schultz fits right in with his employer's new business model. Schultz Trucking jumps at the chance for extra revenue and gets in on the bootlegging business, hauling beer and liquor into New York City from north of the border. It's during his second stint with Schultz Trucking when Dutch clocks in perhaps his first kill. 
boss man Mr. Schultz is enraged that Dutch has taken his son's nickname and, after unsuccessfully explaining to Dutch that popping off rounds will do everything but increase employee efficiency, the newly christened Schultz leaves the company. If there can't be two Dutch Schultzes, I can fix that. (laughs) (laughs) We just kill your son. Yeah. Following his second departure from Schultz Trucking, the Dutchman decides to focus solely on his criminal career. With the help of fellow Bronx native and rising gangster Joey No, Schultz graduates from bootlegging to bouncing. One of many speakeasies, establishments that sold alcohol during the Prohibition era, No opens up the Hub Social Club, a hole in the wall in a tenement on Brook Avenue, and hires Schultz as a bouncer. It's during his tenure at the Hub when Schultz's reputation for violence and brutality comes evident to local mafiosi. No, taken aback by his new employee's ruthlessness and lack of mercy, soon makes Dutch a partner in the business. Schultz's break from the bootlegging business does not last long as he and No expand their operations using their profits from the social club. Utilizing an ingenious business plan, the No-Schultz Alliance drive their own delivery trucks in order to transport booze supplied by Frankie Dunn, a New Jersey brewer. Dutch, riding shotgun on almost every delivery run, seizes the opportunity to put his feared and abhorrent tactics to good use. This is where Schultz gets his other nickname, the Beer Baron of the Bronx. Much better nickname. Yeah. It's cool, and it makes you picture this guy with a long beard that's really knowledgeable about about craft beers, and he can make like the best brew. He's the opposite of that, though. What Mm. it is, Prohibition comes, and you've got these companies like Anheuser, Schlitz, and all them, they don't want to go totally under. So what they do is they come up with this thing called near beer. And you're allowed to make beer if it's like 0.5% alcohol. In other words, you'd have to drink two cases to get a buzz off it. And apparently it, it tastes like crap. But they're, they're coming out with this stuff, right? And this is what's being sold in the bars. Well, Schultz comes up. He, I don't know if he invents it, but there's this thing called needle beer. And what it is, you take these crummy beers, you take a syringe with some like grain alcohol or something in it, and you inject the alcohol through the cork in the top. And so what you had before was a really crappy beer with no alcohol, but once you inject that grain alcohol in it, why, it's even worse. And uh, nobody wants this thing. It's the poorest people in the world that buy this stuff. So, So nobody wants this crummy beer. But the way he becomes the beer baron is he goes in with shotguns and uh, that's his uh, that's his pressure. Like, hey, you're going to buy this beer or I'm going to blow your head off. And he becomes the, the beer baron of the Bronx. And that, the business model is foolproof. Yeah. yeah. Sales skyrocketed for him. It'd be like nowadays somebody's selling like natty lights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me think that sounded like a pre-Odul O'Doul, but it had more liquor, more beer in it, actually. Or O'Doul's are like point zero zero something. It's like somebody spiked your Mick Ultra with an old granddad. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. It's like, it's stronger, but it doesn't taste any better. Drink up, boys. <laughs> John and Joe Rock, two brothers who themselves are running a respected bootlegging operation, make the mistake of pushing back against the no-Schultz faction, who are quickly taking business away from the rocks. John, who realizes when he's outgunned, decides to cooperate with Dutch and agrees to buy beer from his outfit. Joe, the younger brother, inexplicably chooses to take a stand and refuses to do business with Schultz. Schultz decides to give Joe a lesson in negotiating. Not long after supposedly sticking it to Dutch, 
Joe Rock is kidnapped, beaten, and hung from a notebook by his thumbs, all the while blinded by a gonorrhea-infected gauze bandage wrapped over his eyes. Soon after the Rock family pays the No Schultz gang a hefty 35 grand in exchange for Joe, he goes blind as a result of the crime. There's a lot here to get into, but like the hanging by the thumbs, we talk about his creativity and stuff. So I'm like, who? how do you hang somebody by the thumbs from a meat hook? And I'm picturing the meat hook going through the thumb and it's not gonna work, right? And mm -hmm. I start smelling BS, but no. Hanging by the thumbs is a thing and it's been a thing since the medieval times. It can so be done. They tie cords around the under part of the knuckle of your thumb so tight, they loop them and then you hang that over the meat hook. They did this in London. You punish the people, and I guess if you hang there all day, it deforms your hands and stuff, and you can't work anymore, and then they can punish you for not, for being lazy and not working. The gonorrhea soap bandages. You know, they That's got the innovation hanging. we're talking about. Dutch is like, hey, no, what, what you got in the briefcase? <laughs> She's like, well, let's see here. We got a, a dirty diaper. We got a dead squirrel. Oh, and here's something. <laughs> been I hanging got, on to this. I got some gauze bandages that have been ripped in a gonorrhea discharge. <laughs> Like, what the hell are they doing Ooh, with that? Yeah. Do, do you think Joe learned how to negotiate, though? Do you think... Uh, I, I never uh, got the story on what happened to him, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think he was ever okay. No. No. No, no. no. Rock got rocked. Predictably, business began booming for the No Schultz partnership as the Rock brothers hastily fall back in line. Schultz is brought to court shortly thereafter. Not for the blinding of Joe Rock, however but for the much harsher crime of tax evasion. He's acquitted after being represented by high-profile Albany attorney James Noonan. Eventually, the bootlegging operation under the leadership of Dutch and Joey No grows large enough to rival the future heads of the five families, thus becoming the only non-Italian gang to do so. That's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, especially when you're thinking this is the commission now and it's going to be all Sicilian mm -hmm. and stuff, so Dutch is really carving a hard place out for himself. The two decide to extend their reach and expand their real estate to include Manhattan's Upper West Side, raking in profits from the Harlem, Yorkville, and Washington Heights neighborhoods, while also moving company headquarters to East 149th Street in Manhattan. The sudden move catches the unwanted attention of one Jack Legs Diamond, the leader of New York's Irish mob. In retaliation, Legs makes a move that will gradually affect both gangs and their lucrative businesses. On the early morning of October 16, 1928, Joey Noe is commiserating outside Chateau Madrid, another speakeasy on West 54th Street. Seemingly out of nowhere, a blue Cadillac pulls up next to Noe and he's shot several times while still on the sidewalk. Unbelievably, the brazen Noe somehow manages to return fire. The caddy speeds away from the scene, but as it turns out, the getaway driver is a bit inexperienced, crashing off a parked car and losing one of its doors. Police managed to recover the car about an hour later, discovering the body of one Louis Weinberg, who shares the last name of No Schultz gang members Bo and George Weinberg, but no relation. Miraculously, Joey No survives the ambush at Chateau Madrid for about a month. His wounds become infected, and No succumbs to the injuries on November 21st. Schultz, whose emotions are widely ranging from distraught to enraged, immediately seeks revenge for the loss of his friend and partner. He lingered on and died a really bad death. They say he was down to 100 pounds when he died. So he just slowly watched him emaciate over a very short time. So it was 
worse than than just watching him die. He watched him suffer and die horribly. Yeah. It's like machinist, bro. Yeah. Like that, that's Gosh. First on Dutch's hit list is a member of the Jewish mob in the city, Arnold Rothstein who mentored the likes of Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, and Meyer Lansky, is found bullet-riddled and dead at the service entrance of the Park Central Hotel. A commonly accepted theory is that Rothstein is gunned down because he refused to pay a gambling debt of 320 grand, which is equivalent to 4.8 million today, from a high-stakes poker game he claimed was fixed. Isn't he the guy that fixed the World Series? <laughs> was he? Yeah. Arnold Rothstein? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I think he was. The Black Sox? Yeah. He goes, it takes one to know one. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I know when stuff's rigged. Yeah, the irony is <laughs> thick. <laughs> George Hump McManus is accused of the hit, but is eventually acquitted over a lack of evidence. How'd he get that name? Hump. Anybody <laughs> <laughs> has to do to get that nickname? <laughs> I, I, I wonder what he thought of it. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about the Hump. Yeah, they keep calling it, but... I, I don't know if that's a good nickname or not. <laughs> Following the acquittal, a theory emerges that Schultz himself took Rothstein's life as retribution for the death of No. One damning piece of evidence supports this hypothesis. The first person McManus calls following the killing of Rothstein is Dixie Davis, the lawyer of none other than Dutch Schultz. Not long after the phone call, Bo Weinberg, Schultz's right-hand man, Scoops up McManus from the scene. This is cloudy, and uh, in my opinion, it's more likely that McManus killed him. And uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. Like, the first thing you might think is, like, how are you going to get your money back from a guy that you just killed? Yeah. But you got to remember, he's not like me or you, where if, if I owe you 60 grand and you kill me, you're not going to get the 60 grand, mm -hmm. you know? But this is a guy who has rackets and, and, and networks of people and stuff. So you can kill him and take over his businesses and his networks and stuff. And yes, you'll yeah. get your money back. So it makes more sense. Now, maybe Dutch had something to do with it. But I think it's probably more related to the depths than it is legs. I think uh, if he wants legs dead, legs is dead. Yeah, because four point eight million dollars is more than enough reason for someone to get killed. Yeah, yeah. I think it's plenty. <laughs> and by the way, if you'll remember from episode two, he's killed in the same hotel that later on in '57, Anastasia yep, is killed in. Yep, yes. yep, yep. In October 1929, a year after the death of Joey No. Legs Diamond is enjoying a quaint meal with his mistress in their private suite at the Hotel Monticello. Eating a nice dinner in their pajamas, the two lovers don't make it to dessert as two gunmen bust through the door and blast him five times before leaving the scene. Legs gets to his feet and makes his way out into the hallway, but not before downing two shots of whiskey to give him the strength. I don't know why, but I picture after he gets shot, you know, he gets up and does the... He does the two shots. It does the old thing where the whiskey's pouring out the holes in his uh, stomach, you know. He's like looks down and like the whiskey's coming out like the fountains, you know. Probably didn't go down like that. No. <laughs> Diamond eventually recovers from his wounds and sets off for an extended vacation to Europe. The Diamond crew back home is left defenseless without their leader and are forced to leave the city altogether. Upon his return to New York, Legs tries to hash out some new territory for himself. But his real estate career is not a prosperous one. In December 1931, Legs is dealt with for good, gunned down by two gunmen, and a cheap rooming house in Albany. Just as Dutch is starting to think things are settling down, some unsettling things are arising in his own gang. Unlike other major gangs in New York organized crime, Schultz is taken to paying his members a flat salary instead of the traditional percentage of the take from operations. 
1930, Vincent Cole, an enforcer in the Schultz gang, reevaluates this arrangement and finds it unacceptable. Cole approaches Schultz with an idea make him an equal partner in the business. Predictably, Dutch refuses to promote Cole, resulting in a makeshift rebellion from Cole. So Dutch's operation is kind of a communist setup. He, uh, a lot of these guys are you getting a percentage of the take and stuff, but Dutch is just paying them a flat salary, which is usually $1,000, which is $15,000. Yeah. And I believe that's weekly, right? So this is these guys are making good money, yeah. but you know there's always one guy working harder than another and stuff, and that this yeah. is where Cole's coming from. He's doing all the killing and all the, I'm doing all the heavy lifting. This guy's and, on his ass while yeah, I'm Yeah, exactly. There's the guy that's like, hey, I'm just going to grab a smoke while you kill this guy, you know, and they're all, they're not making, like, uh, much from the cut, and, and Dutch is raking it in. Just feels like they should be honored to be serving him and stuff, and even though I'm making millions, you should be happy with your scraps and stuff. And I think he really misjudges the temperament of the men he's working with. You know what I mean? Yeah. They they want to be big too. Hey, did you see the movie A Bronx Tale? Yeah. The greatest scene when he said, is it better to be feared or loved? Mm-hmm. And he was saying, I got to make sure that they're making enough money that they love me, but they can't make too much. Because if they make too much, they'll think they don't need me. And it was an interesting dynamic there. And I think Dutch kind of tipped the scales on this one. He's a... Uh, He's going way too much with the feared, and he's not letting them eat enough that, you know, you get the situation like Cole. Yeah. Roxdale, great movie. That was a great movie. Sporting the new nickname Mad Dog, Cole forms his own gang and sets out with the goal of killing Schultz and taking over his territory. Bloodshed ensues, with Cole's brother Pete biting the dust, as well as a child being gunned down during an assassination attempt gone wrong by the Cole gang. This is kind of weird. He's got two nicknames. He's Mad Dog, and he's also Babyface. <laughs> so he, he's the Babyface Mad Dog. A wide-ranging nickname. It's a perplexing image to make people think of. It <laughs> is, and the way this goes down is I don't think Cole is like public enemy number one until this child dies. And it's like, a, you know, when it's 100 years ago and stuff, you can kind of gloss over it and stuff. But it was a big deal at the time. And the, the five-year-old child has a name, and it's Michael Vengali. And when he died, the, the community, thousands of people were at the funeral. It's on the news. And now gangsters are hated, and they hate this guy. And uh, one of the reporters or whatever that on TV says, whoever did this is a mad dog. And it, it no, was a it was a, a nickname of like, you're a piece of shit, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, this is like, really the whole public opinion on this guy has gone downhill. He's a, he's a dead man walking when this happens. In 1932, Dutch gets the jump on Cole after two years of fighting between the gangs. While taking a call in a drugstore phone booth, Mad Dog finds himself on the wrong end three machine guns and is bombarded by a storm of glass and hellfire, crumpling into an unrecognizable heap of bullets and death. It's believed that the killers are Edward Fats McCarthy and the Weinberg brothers, but this has never proven to be the case. He was killed by Tommy gun fire. There were 15 bullets straight across him. It perforated him. Damn near cut him in half. As prohibition comes to its inevitable end, Schultz needs to find a new source of income. This new source comes in the form of the Harlem Numbers Racket, run by Otto Abadaba Berman. Who sounds like he was named by uh, Fred Flintstone in a moment of extreme <laughs> exhilaration, you know. But uh, it's, not, it's an unfortunate nickname. The racket is centered around the pick three lotteries, where players choose three numbers and then derive from the last number before the decimal and the total amount bet at Belmont Park. Schultz completes the transition from bootlegger to bookie. 
So this is a, it's really pretty simple. They picked three numbers, and I think your odds of winning back then were like one in 600. So a hell of a lot better than what they would be in like playing the lotto where you're not going to win. Obviously, they don't trust Dutch to, to just pick the numbers and stuff. So they've got like a horse race, and they've got three different events, and the numbers correlate with that. So you got to kind of follow three events that pick the numbers. And then it's based on your payouts, based on the number of people that pick the numbers that you picked, which would there, you wouldn't be the only one. Berman, a middle-aged accountant and borderline mathematics prodigy, is able to calculate the minimum amount that Schultz needs to bet at Belmont in order to alter the odds at the last minute, ensuring that the Dutchman always controls which numbers win and guaranteeing a huge portion of losers in Harlem. With this racket, it's estimated that Schultz is raking in millions upon millions of tax-free dollars every month. For his troubles, Berman is reportedly paid upwards of 10 grand a week, approximately 143 grand today. A man of culture, Schultz decides to spread his rackets from the racetrack to the restaurant business. Along with his Belmont schemes, the Dutchman innovates new ways of intimidating eatery owners and workers, resorting to tactics such as brutal beatings and even stink bombings. Allied with brutish gangster Jules Majaluski, aka Julie Martin, Schultz forces restaurant owners to join his Metropolitan Restaurant and Cafeteria Owners Association, making quote-unquote deals with leaders of Waiters Local 16 and Cafeteria Workers Local 302, extorting tons of cash along the way. Refusal to join the association is met with a reasonable reaction, outlandish wage demands, and the unorthodox strong-arm strategies Schultz has become renowned for. Anybody want to guess how much it costs to be in the union? Something ungodly. $25,000. For the pleasure of existing. Man, yeah, I mean, 10000 is 143 today. Gee, that's just a tax. Getting close and, uh, to half a million dollars. I saw some old newsreels where an old lady is like, they told me I had to join their association and they threatened me with a stink bomb. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that sucks, man, when they hold your face down and, like, fart on your face. That's, like, that is strong arm tactics, you know? It's brutal. Yeah, there's another guy going, like, oh, I have no choice. They uh, they threatened me with a stink bomb, so I, I paid them what I owed them, you know? It, it's, kind of, it, it's, it's kind of funny to see it you know, when it's 100 years ago. With Martin acting as his tax collector, Schultz has opened up yet another stream of revenue. Although the shakedowns of the restaurants are serving him well, Schultz begins to suspect that he himself is being taken advantage of. The Dutchman begins to think that Martin is skimming from the profits, and after discovering $70,000 missing from the books, Schultz decides to deal with the problem head on. The amazing yeah. thing is, is there really are books. I've seen the ledgers. Like, he's keeping track of, like, 19 cents. It's all wow. written down. Which you think would be counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah, the feds find that. What's this, Dutch? It's, it's all laid out. I, I couldn't believe that actually existed. On the night of March 2nd, 1935, Dutch cordially invites Martin to a meeting at the luxurious Harmony Hotel in Cohoes, New York. Bo Weinberg and Dixie Davis accompany Schultz as they listen to Martin unequivocally deny the allegations made against him. Predictably, Dutch does not accept this denial. With both men completely drunk, the argument escalates to catastrophic levels. In the end, Martin admits to stealing 20 grand from the operation, claiming that he was entitled to it. According to Dixie Davis, what happened next was nothing more than business for the Dutchman. Quote, Dutch was ugly. He had been drinking and suddenly had his gun out. Schultz wore his pistol under his vest, tucked inside his pants right against his belly. One jerk at his vest and he had it in his hand. 
All in the same quick motion, he swung it up, stuck it in Jules's mouth, and pulled the trigger. It was as simple and undramatic as that, just one quick motion of the hand. Dutch Schultz did that murder just as casually as if he were picking his teeth. With Martin dead on the floor, Schultz was a gentleman about it and apologized to his lawyer for having to witness the murder he'd just committed. Upon reading of the murder in the coming days, Davis is in disbelief, learning that the body has been recovered in a snowbank with a dozen stab wounds in his chest. Schultz's response when asked about it? I cut his heart out. After disposing of one enemy, Schultz quickly finds himself facing down another in the form of Thomas E. Dewey, a U.S. attorney, and the same Dewey from the erroneous Dewey Defeats Truman headline. Dewey, who is infamous in mob circles for coming at them hard, has his sights set on sending Dutch to prison for tax evasion. Schultz's lawyers come through, however, getting a retrial moved to the small town of Malone, New York, after Dutch's initial charges are overturned. A man of the people, Schultz tries to get ahead of the curve and begins strutting about the town, presenting himself as a good citizen and a country squire, going as far as donating to businesses and giving toys to sick children. The strategy pays off, and Dutch is acquitted in the summer of 1935. This uh, Malone is a really small farming town and stuff, and there's a lot of things in play here. And uh, the, the biggest part is he's going around, walking into a restaurant, and picking up the tab for everybody. And he's just like everybody's great guy. He also, on his defense team, he gets the two biggest lawyers in town, the guys with the highest reputations. He puts them on the team, you know, so they're making money and they're spreading it around. Everybody's getting rich off of Dutch. I think the other thing in play is all these farmers and stuff, they're making whiskey in their garage or whatever they're making. So they're calling him this big bootlegger and they're painting it like he's a bad guy, but they're like, well, I make a little moonshine. (laughs) They're they're not getting the real picture. He's also hanging you by your thumbs, you and wrapping gonorrhea and bandages in your eyes and stuff. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think this stuff makes it into trial. They love him. And uh, the evidence is overwhelming that he's guilty. And the judge is furious. He can't believe it when they when they acquit him. And not only acquit him, you know, he, he scolds the jury and tells them they screwed up and that this is a, a miscarriage of justice. And he's like, you know, the judge really rips him. And then he walks outside and a crowd of people cheer. Hey, it's Dutch, you know, and they love him. And they're, they're practically carrying him like he oh caught the touchdown God. pass you know for Ohio State <laughs> and, and they're walking him down the street and stuff so uh, he he just plays this town to the hilt and uh, has a great time doing it I just picture him walking into the hospital and handing out like Legos and teddy bears to kids they're <laughs> just like hey is that too bad that's what he's doing yeah yeah Beside himself, New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia issues an arrest on site for Schultz if he returns to the city Not wanting to push the issue any further, Dutch moves his operations to Newark, New Jersey. With legal costs mounting, Schultz decides to cut the wages of his runners and controllers, reducing pay from 50% to 10% for runners and 5% for the controllers. Despite being threatened relentlessly by Schultz's associates, the runners and controllers in the gang decide to take a stand against their boss, hiring a haul and declaring a strike. Perhaps for the first time ever, Schultz is forced to compromise. After fewer and fewer bets are being carried out, the Dutchman reluctantly sets the wages back to how they were. Concerned over the amount of money Schultz is using from his rackets to fund his defense, Bo Weinberg gets advice from Longies Wilman, a New Jersey crime boss who arranges for him to strike a deal with none other than Charlie Lucky Luciano. Luciano, under the impression that a guilty verdict will surely be dealt to the Dutchman at the second trial, spawns a plan to break up the Schultz gang's rackets and territory among his associates. 
Weinberg is never seen again after Schultz's acquittal. Following his surprising acquittal, Schultz hastily organizes a meeting with Luciano and the commission, seeking clarity when it comes to his carefully built criminal empire. In a way of trying to get on Lucky's good side, the Dutchman even tries his hand at Catholicism. Luciano assures Schultz that they were simply looking after his business in his stead until the heat on him had died down. Dutch has no choice but to accept the situation as it is. With pressure from Dewey, who's now a special prosecutor appointed by LaGuardia, and law enforcement closing in, Schultz takes a backseat to Luciano. Later on, the Dutchman proposes to the National Crime Syndicate that Dewey should be murdered. The commission votes unanimously against this proposal, but this doesn't stop Schultz from seeking other avenues of achieving his goal. After claiming that he'll kill Dewey himself when leaving the meeting, Dutch approaches Albert Anastasia, the leader of Murder Incorporated. Anastasia, perhaps not wanting to set off Luciano any more than he already is, approaches Lucky with information pertaining to a possible Dewey hit. Anastasia reports that Schultz had asked him to stake out Dewey's apartment, leading to an emergency meeting of the commission. Following six hours of jury-style deliberating, the big bosses decide to get rid of Dutch Schultz for good. They took the time, like six hours. They, yeah. they made sure it was They're the right decision to make. Thought. I think it was six hours of slack-jawed amazement that somebody actually was stupid enough to say, screw you, I'll do <laughs> yeah. what I want. Like, he heard us say no, right? It wasn't, <laughs> I didn't imagine that. The art of hearing? Yeah, I think they thought they were past that, you know? <laughs> they were past arguing about whether or not they had the authority to make a decision. It's probably six hours of deciding what they're going to do with his rackets after he was dead. Yeah, they were just all that dividing up his garments and yeah. casting lots. Yeah, yeah that's, you're probably right. That's what it was. <laughs> On the evening of October 23rd, 1935, at 10.15 p.m., Dutch had been using the establishment as his new headquarters, but evidently not as his new safe house. A lot of gangsters back then would choose multiple places to meet at random. Schultz opted to always go to the chop house, seriously underestimating the temperament of the commission. He is presumably planning the execution of Dewey. Charles the Bug Workman and Emmanuel Mendy Weiss, two murder incorporated contract killers, enter through the back doors of the chop house. They must move in a low-key manner that does not attract attention. Dutch is heavily protected by men he can trust. Whatever their tactic, they seem to pass through the establishment unnoticed. Everything is going according to plan except for one detail. Dutch Schultz is not at the table with his crew. This is not good. A pair of assassins take a hard but casual sweep of the room. No sign. Workman scans the room again and notices the restroom. Casually strides over and in. Dutch, who's reportedly taking the last peaceful leak of his life, is either finishing up or washing his hands. Workman pulls his gun quickly and fires off two shots. Only one finds its target. Caught completely unaware, Schultz is rocked backward as the bullet punctures his body just below the heart, bounces around wildly in his abdomen, and then exits through his back. The Dutchman collapses to the floor, and Workman is satisfied that he's dead or will be in minutes. Realizing that the bathroom execution would get this party started, the assassin joins Weiss to handle the rest of the Schultz crew. Otto Berman, Abe Landau, who's Schultz's new lieutenant, and Bernard Lulu Rosencrantz are seated at the former boss's table, only to find themselves in a flurry of gunfire. Berman flops to the ground immediately upon being shot. Landau, meanwhile, finds his carotid artery almost completely severed by a bullet making its way through his thick neck, and Rosencrantz is hit from point-blank range. Their injuries won't slow them down, however, as both men rebelliously rise to their feet and return fire. 
Even as their lives are escaping them, Landau and Rosenkratz manage to drive the hitmen out of the restaurant. Weiss, ever the team player, hastily hops into the getaway car and demands that the driver leave Workman behind. The driver obliges, bailing on Workman and forcing him to flee on foot. Landau collapses on a nearby trash can. Dutch, refusing to die on a urine-soaked floor, staggers and fights his way out into the restaurant, clutching his side and taking a seat at his now abandoned table. Schultz calls for someone to phone an ambulance. Rosenkratz rises to his feet and demands change from the barman, who is now seriously considering hiring bouncers. Rosenkratz manages to call the ambulance before passing out on the floor. As the first ambulance arrives on scene, Landau and Rosenkratz are taken away as the most seriously wounded patrons at Newark City Hospital. A second ambulance picks up Schultz, who is in and out of lucidity, and Berman, who has lost consciousness. The medics, lacking any pain medication, instead give Schultz a brandy to relieve his ailing wounds. Schultz even gives one of the medics 10 grand to ensure he got the best care available. After the surgery, when Dutch's odds are looking good, the medic shoves the money back into the bed, not wanting to be indebted to the infamous mobster. Around 2.20 that morning, Otto Berman is the first to go, followed by Abe Landau at 6 a.m. Before expiring, Landau and Rosenkratz refuse to supply police with any information until Schultz gives them the nod to do so. Rosenkratz improbably survives for 29 hours after the shooting, despite incalculable blood loss and severe ballistic trauma. Now, it's Schultz's turn to go under the knife. After receiving his last rites from a Catholic priest, Schultz goes into surgery convinced that Jesus will spare him, just as he had spared him prison time. The extent to which Dutch's abdominal organs have been damaged is unbeknownst to the doctors. Workman, who was eventually charged with the murder, has also intentionally used rusted bullets to make sure Schultz does not get out alive. Even if the Dutchman had pulled through, he would have been afflicted with a fatal bloodstream infection known as septicema. After conversing with his wife, priest, the police, and doctors, Dutch Schultz dies of peritonitis at the age of 33. A boy has never wept, nor dashed a thousand kin. You can play jacks, and girls do that with a softball and do tricks with it. Oh, oh, dog biscuit. When he is happy, he doesn't get snappy. These were the last words of Dutch Schultz. A lesson to us all. (laughs) (laughs) A couple things about just the general personality of Dutch. Uh, One of the things I've noticed as I'm researching these guys, and it surprised me, is I didn't see a lot of like alcohol abuse and drug abuse and things like that. You had a little bit of the rumors of the cocaine abuse with Al Capone and stuff, but most of these guys are are straight arrows, like Anastasia. He was definitely not a drunk and stuff. And I found that interesting because... in the gangster cliche, I picture him, you know, doing shots of whiskey, getting drunk, and uh, being kind of like Joe Pesci and Goodfellas, you know, running up bar tabs and stuff. It's not the case. But with the Dutchman, it is the case. He had a, a big reputation for uh, kind of not being able to handle his booze, chasing women around and stuff. And uh, there was actually an article, some reporter had the guts to write an article that he was a uh, a uh, whiskey squilling or beer drinking guy that can't handle his booze and he's got a weakness for blondes. Dutch is a lightweight. He writes this smear thing on Dutch and uh, I guess Dutch actually finds the reporter and he's like, you know, hey, how could you write this kind of thing about me and stuff? Yeah. And he kind of shakes him down. But the reporter's like, isn't it true? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it's true, but you don't write that in the paper. What kind of thing is that to write? You know who I am? 
Yeah, <laughs> but he, but he, he did. He fully accepted it. Although I don't think he liked the characterization of being a guy that can't handle his booze. Yeah, you know. So you don't call a mobster a, a lightweight. No. Right. So he's dying, and he he's got a lot of last words. Uh, I, I wrote a few of them down, but uh, just like how can you make anything out of that? Yeah. You can't. And, uh, <laughs> he's just hallucinating. He is, and I don't know if you've ever been that sick. I have on like a, a few different occasions of my life where my brain is literally boiling, and I can remember like hearing my grandfather talk and people eating dinner like over my head, and I'm thinking this is real. Uh, once in Tampa, I got so sick that I thought people were in the room. And they would be arguing with me, and I would be, I don't have to justify myself as a man to you. And everyone's just looking at me like, what the hell? <laughs> and I would get my senses back and be like, okay, they're, they're not here. They're not yeah. real. And Jeez. I'd have it, but slowly it would bleed back in. And then now there's a guy in the chair, and man. pretty soon they're back to attacking me. And I get this, man. You know, I, I was, you feel like you're losing your mind and stuff. And I actually had a friend stop by, and she's like, dude, I have some penicillin. Do you want it? And uh, I think if she hadn't given it to me, I was in trouble. You know, because wow. I was beyond an ability to help myself. And so I, I kind of get this. But some of his things he said, Oh, mama, mama, please don't tear, don't rip. Mother is the best bet, and don't let Satan draw you too fast. And there's uh, some rock formations about devils, cliff, devils, whatever, devils, tombstone and stuff. And that's where the treasure thing comes from. They think he's dropping clues. Uh, and I'm thinking he's just, yeah, I don't think it means. He says, Who shot me? No one. I will be checked and double-checked, and please pull for me. The sidewalk was in trouble, and the bears were in trouble, and I broke it up. I can't come. Express office was closed. Please crack down on the Chinaman's friends and Hitler's commander. The Chinaman thing, you know, that's a Masseria <laughs> reference. I'm like, hey, man, there yeah. might be something to that. These native children make this, and you sell the joint. Hey, Jimmy, the chimney sweeps. Talk to the sword. Shut up. you got a big mouth. Please come help me up, Henny. Max, come over here. French Canadian bean soup. I want to pay. Let them leave me alone. And it goes on and on. He's asking to help him to the taxi and blah, blah, blah. But there's a YouTube video called The Last Words of Dutch Schultz where somebody did like an animated show about his last words and somebody's reading it in his voice like on a deathbed. And it's almost like a gangster version of Pink Floyd The Wall. And if you (laughs) get a chance, like look it up. It's It's the last words of Dutch Schultz really really cool especially if you're into artsy i'm gonna check that out yeah it, it's it's something to see i i enjoyed the hell out of it yeah. i can't remember who did it but it, it's great it's great stuff so uh like i said there's the treasure i don't think there's much to it yeah i think my theory uh, of it might be nothing <laughs> it might yeah hold some weight maybe it didn't bury any treasure yeah probably not yeah or somebody dug it up a long time ago. Yeah, and it wasn't as much as he said, and they just kept it to themselves. Yeah. It could have been someone that was an unconnected at all to the mafia. Just someone some digging with a metal, metal detector, detector, and he found it, so he doesn't think they're, like, reported. He's, like, X amount of dollars. He just, yeah, just keeps it for himself. <laughs> that could very easily have been the case. What luck. Okay, on Instagram, we've uh, done really good on Instagram. We've gotten uh, more and more following. But what really impresses me is there's a lot of guys out there doing gangster stuff like we're doing and stuff. And uh, far from being cantankerous about us just jumping in, you know, like a bunch of schmoes, they've been really helpful. And uh, uh, I just want to give a shout-out to a couple people. If you like uh, gangster stuff and you're on Instagram, check out Gangster Profiles. Uh, check out Wise Guys, Wise Guys Gangsters. 
the Mafia blog, the Mafia Corner, and, and there's a lot of others. I'll try to give you all shout-outs and stuff. But they've been really helpful sending me stuff, posting stuff, and just, just great people out there. It's a, it's a strange little community, you know, when you're into this and stuff. And uh, my hope is that we can make it entertaining enough that other people who normally wouldn't be, you know, will, will come in and stuff. But uh, it's a neat little group to be a part of, and I appreciate all you guys out there that have been sending me texts and stuff. And I try to respond to you personally when you do, and uh, it never bugs me. I love hearing from people, and I love the relationships that, that come out of this. It's, it's great. So uh, I think that's it. Do you got anything else to say, Joshua the Intern? Don't forget to buy your autographed copy of Orlando Spado's The Accidental Gangster. Links are in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.